The first time my parents took me down to the lake to go for a run, I think I was in about second grade. Yeah, and for me, it was probably when I was in uh, kindergarten or first grade. Pretty young, right? And we, and, we, and we grew up on this running culture. My sister was born, and then we started taking her and putting on our jogger and running with her, even when she was super small, so then we could all run together, despite not being physically able to. Yeah. <laughs> even when our grandparents came from India... Uh, to visit in the summers, um, they would always walk the small portion of it, and we'd always meet them at the same spot. Uh, but it, it, you know, it was always a lot of fun. You know, we'd always bring a little extra bread and, and feed ducks, or sometimes just sit at this bench that was um, towards the end and just sit in the shade. Being able to run as a family was was sort of a, a bonding experience for us. It's a time when we all got together and we just all went out uh, onto the trail. So that's how we remember Austin. My dad and mom, two brothers, sister and the dog, all running together at the lake. My name is Rohit Srinivasan. And I'm Siddharth Srinivasan. And this is... I Love, love You So Much. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast. A show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm your host, Tali Mosley. I'm Omar Gayaga. And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Lady Bird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman. In this week's episode, we're talking about crawfish boils, but not everybody loves them. Are they controversial? We try to figure out why they've become so popular in Austin and debate the merits of working so hard for your lunch. Why are 11 women, some who have never distance cycled before, bicycling from Seattle to San Diego this summer? Two Austinites from Pedal the Pacific tell us how a coffee conversation about sex trafficking inspired this epic journey. Kids are naturally creative, so it's no wonder they love taking pictures with our phones. John Chamberlain, who has two young kids and teaches photography classes in South Austin, shares some tips with us on cultivating kids' artistic instincts naturally. We'll end, as always, with our recommendations in a toast, but first, crawfish. Are they spring's most perfect communal meal, or are they too much work for too little payoff? Omar, Tali, and I discuss. Omar, Addy, welcome to our own show, where we're talking about crawfish boils. Yeah, I have thoughts. Okay, yeah, so I did not realize this is a controversial thing until I walked into the newsroom today. <laughs> so, um, Addie, you have you are fresh off a crawfish boil. Yes, so I have yeah. both positive and negative things to say, because I paid $40 for a crawfish boil, and I'm not very happy about it. Good but, Lord, why? But let me be the defender of crawfish boils here in this segment, because crawfish boils have a long history in Louisiana. Uh, you know, according to this website, CajunGrocer.com, apparently when people came to uh, southern Louisiana, from Nova Scotia in the 1700s, the legend is that the lobsters longed for them so much that they decided to follow, which is quite cheesy. And they, and like, they shrank along the way or what happened? <laughs> and they had like a Nietzschean death drive, so they yes, longed all. to be killed. It was, but, it was a long road, Tully. I mean, basically, people have been eating crustaceans for a very long time, and people have been eating crawfish in Louisiana for as long as people have been living in Louisiana. Now, when did crawfish boils become a thing in Austin, Texas? Omar and I have developed a theory. We have some theories. Well, okay, first, let, before we start, let's set the parameters here. What What is a crawfish boil? Okay, so boil? crawfish boil. I actually had never been to a crawfish boil before I moved to I've Texas. I've never been one. Yeah. I've only seen pictures. And you, wait, really? Yeah. 
Okay. I'm, I'm about to talk this smack This is going to change this conversation. <laughs> okay, so the crawfish boil is actually a beautiful idea. You get together with all your friends and family. You get these crawfish slash mud bugs slash crawdaddies, whatever you want to call them. You can only buy crawfish from about Mar- Mardi Gras time, February through about June. So we're kind of coming towards the last tail end of the crawfish season. Tail so end. The tails are getting bigger. I mean, that is one good thing that this crawfish boil, that the tails of the crawfish were quite large. But the idea is that you can feed a bunch of people a food that is kind of fun to eat. Fun can be uh, subjective. subjective, yes. And so, but you also put like little things of corn in there and potatoes. Some people put mushrooms, onions with a ton of seasoning. So a lot of that really spicy. I'm not actually sure what the spices are in a classic, but it's like a shrimp boil, okay, so crab it's kind boil. Okay, like a stew, like, like a the stew. end result but is the, a seafood stew. No, the, oh. the end result. So actually they drain it. Oh, so you okay. actually Got scoop it. them out and then on your tray in front of you, or oftentimes people will just dump so after they come out of the water, they actually go into a cooler where they're tossed with additional seasoning and garlic, Ooh, chopped garlic. Okay, and so they've all got right. all the seasoning on the outside with all the potatoes and all the accoutrement. And then you dump them onto a table and then people will stand around the table and eat them together. So it's actually a lovely way to spend a beautiful spring Very afternoon. Communal. communal. You feed a bunch of people. You get spice all over your hands. So you like rub your eyes and all of a sudden you're weeping. <laughs> Sounds great, Daddy. So I, this is the second crawfish boil I've been to this year. So I try to go to at least one a year. Thankfully, I'll have friends who will invite me. But restaurants are getting in on it. There was a, a restaurant downtown um, that used to actually serve crawfish. Boy, you know, boy, you know, they had crabs and other things. Because in other parts of the country, this is a popular style, but for um, maybe crabs or other types of shellfish. Yeah. So, but it, it is a little bit of a, a query about why in Austin are we seeing so many more crawfish boils than we used to. Well, I, th- I think a lot of it is that we sort of adopted uh, New Orleans Mardi Gras culture. Like yes. that we had a lot of you know, the Katrina and, and uh, Rita refugees who have settled here. So we have a lot, like Coal Town Theater is originated from that. So, like, I mean, I I'm think sure they brought some crawfish. You probably have actually answered the question for us that mm-hmm. when Katrina happened, crawfish boils suddenly started happening everywhere. The crawfish missed them so much yes. that they came here to be killed. Okay, now, now here's got a, it. Here's my problem with with crawfish. They're a lot of work. <laughs> They're for a, a lot very of work. little amount of meat. Like, is this what you it, like? Got your guff? I can concur with the a lot of work. Um, you basically peel off the tail. I mean, it's a it, it's about the size of your palm a little smaller than maybe the size of your hand depending on how big your hands are um and really the part that you're eating is like a less than a bite it's like half of a it's like a third of a shrimp yeah i'm like eat it's a, a very eat a shrimp. Why yeah. I eat a shrimp i have this vivid memory of being like maybe 11 or 12 years old in uh, corpus christi with my parents going to a restaurant called crawdaddy's mm-hmm. where all the poor servers wore these incredibly suggestive t-shirts that said pinch me peel me suck me and, and you're like, Mom, Dad. I know, I know. Is the Me Too like, movement happening yet? Oh, no. Oh, no. We have totally, another 25 years for that. We're, okay. still, we're still in the 90s. Yikes. Um, I also, can I tell you all another near miss I had with crawfish boils? I've actually never been to one. I just have these, like, little skirting occasions with them. Okay, so in college, um, maybe this will get to the cultural appropriation point I think you're about to make, Omar. Mm. I was walking by, um, so a frat, a fraternity at our college had a crawfish boil and I didn't go to it but the next morning I had breakfast at the cafeteria and I was walking back home to my dorm and I was walking by the frat house (laughs) and I saw one little lone crawfish like crawling away (laughs) from the frat (laughs) house house. (laughs) that had been hazed (laughs) exactly like towards I mean I guess the soccer field (laughs) but just going away (laughs) the crawfish got paddle marks on its back (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and a 
blood alcohol content. Of <laughs> he saw world. all his friends oh, mutilated and like was the lone survivor. I was like, yay, go little crawfish, go. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> so funny. Well, well, my issue lately with, with um, the boils, which I, no one's invited me to one, so I can't talk speak to that. Probably but because you're kind of a downer about I'm, it. Yeah, I'm like, what's with all these crawfish? <laughs> But you guy. have eaten a crawfish, thus you know how oh, yeah. hard they are to get into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and where did you have a crawfish? And I, and what I, uh, I've, I mean, any seafood <laughs> restaurants. I've, <laughs> I, I feel like I maybe I have been to a crawfish bowl, and I just don't. And it wasn't like a formal party, right? Somebody yeah. just happened to be cooking crawfish. Yeah. Crawfish, okay. So I, yeah, I've had them. I've peeled them. I've, I've, I've had friends from Louisiana who have been like, "Here, how eat this?" I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> um, my issue with it lately is that I think I have a theory that the reason they are they're so popular right now is Instagram. Is that these are very bright colored foods, yeah. you know, with the, <laughs> the yellow corn and the red crawfish. It looks and the, impressive the when silver, you see it all out. Yeah, yeah, the silver pot and you know on the on the uh, you know wooden bench, like you see it, it, the colors pop on Instagram. So and so, but wait, it but wait, good but picture. why does this piss you off? Because like, why does it piss me off? It just I think that it, the people are having the crawfish boils for the gram. Oh, so okay. As the kids say, which I I really should confess that when I went to this crawfish bowl yesterday, I was like, well, at least I'll get a good Instagram. Out of it. Exactly. <laughs> Addie was one of those exactly. people. Exactly, <laughs> those red things pop on Instagram, and I saw because I this weekend I saw so many crawfish boil pictures. Like, who are all these people I know that are going to crawfish boils? And I think it's a very Instagram centric event huh, yeah. these days. Well, yeah, and, and I almost went to one this weekend. Man, so well, many yeah, I mean, this is prime Instagram crawfish boil suffered. season. But um, you know, my parents actually used to roast pigs for their party like when they would have a party Whoa. like this they would get a small pig and roast it and that was the impressive way to feed a bunch of people while you could also like drink beer while you're doing it and so crawfish boils play you know they still fill that there's same. a performative aspect yes, to absolutely. the cooking okay. and so that's why I'm a, a huge fan of them and I think that they're really fun and but my issue is is that crawfish have always been a food of the people and you know crawfish actually grow in on rice fields when rice fields are not active they flood the fields and then they harvest the crawfish and so you know and you can get them for less than a dollar a pound in Louisiana. They're more expensive here. So it's not a high dollar food. And and then you throw in the corn and the potatoes and the onions. It's Surprise, the cheapest produce in the grocery store. Um, you can't really charge more than like 15 bucks for a crawfish boil. And I think beyond, so that's where I got, I got a crawfish in my craw about uh, <laughs> this most recent boil. But um, it was it was actually, the, the crawfish tasted better than most of the crawfish I've had. I've had kind of subpar crawfish before where it's not well seasoned and they're itty bitty teeny tiny. Mm-hmm. But these were almost more like I was actually eating shrimp. But then I was thinking, man, wouldn't it be great if there was actually shrimp in here? Yeah. Like, okay. So the, you're... Where, where, why, why am I not being invited to shrimp boils? I would totally go to that. Why am I not, not at Lobster Fest? Ooh, yeah. See, but those think about how much how much money it would take to buy a hundred pounds of shrimp for a boil. A hundred pounds lobster. of lobster, you know, a hundred pounds of crawfish is a lot less expensive. And so, but I mean, I left there and we had to go home and eat. So, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, listeners, I'm kind of Switzerland about this crawfish boil <laughs> idea. I do not have impassioned thoughts you had about no it. No idea it would be so controversial. Uh, yeah, I really didn't. But we would love to hear from you guys and if you are enjoying or adamantly not enjoying crawfish boil season in Austin, Texas. The Refuge Ranch, which is poised to open in Bastrop later this year, has a unique mission to rehabilitate young women who are survivors of sex trafficking in Texas. Savannah Nowellers and Grace Pfeffer were shocked to find out how big a problem it is right here in Austin and decided to do something about it. 
Savannah, you are getting ready to pedal from Seattle all the way to San Diego. What in the heck would make you want to do that? <laughs> yeah, well, um, last year I saw a group of girls that were doing it, um, and the goal is to raise money and awareness for human trafficking. And so I didn't really know much about it prior to, but then the more I got to know about it and like read about it and watched what these girls were doing, realized, A, that human trafficking is a huge deal and it's affecting so many people in the U.S. alone and I never really realized that I was kind of thought it was overseas or things like that um so yeah I just got I kind of got hooked and um wanted to do something maybe not like entirely for myself but just be able to use like my like my abilities Mm -hmm. to just help a cause that is like intense. <laughs> One of the people that you saw on Instagram doing this was Grace, who's also in the studio with us. Hello. Grace, what what prompted you to go on this crazy journey last year? So I did this journey last year with two other girls, Sarah and Savannah, and the whole concept of Pedal the Pacific was their idea. And they were sitting in a coffee shop right before their last semester of college. And they both had become passionate about fighting against sex trafficking for different reasons. We all kind of came from um, our different stories and they were like, I want to do something that raises awareness about this cause because people think it happens in the bad neighborhoods and people think it happens overseas, but you know, it's happening right around the corner from where we live. So what can we do? And they had seen someone riding their bike a long distance for a different cause once before. And so they threw it out. They're like, haha, what if we rode our bikes down the Pacific coast? And they both laughed it off and got back on their computers and were applying for jobs. Laughed it off because they weren't particularly athletic? Yes. None of us are athletic at all. None of us owned bikes until like three months before the ride. Um, This is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And so like 10 minutes later, Savannah looks up from her computer and is like, Sarah, are you still thinking about this? And Sarah turns her computer around and has Googled can an unathletic human bike a long distance? (laughs) And so then all of a sudden they're like, let's do this. You know, we're so unqualified, but that's that's the point. You know, it gets people talking and it gets people asking questions and wondering why are you doing something so unlike you and so out of your comfort zone. So question for you both. First of all, Grace, did you hurt yourself? Like, were you safe during this trip? (laughs) We all had some falls. Savannah more so than the rest of us. But um, we made it alive. We made it all in one piece. Um, My worst injury, I got poison ivy on my butt. So the last (laughs) poison ivy, really, no matter where you get it, poison ivy is bad. Yeah, but then I'm riding a bike on my poison ivy for the last week. So that was not fun at all. But how much money did you end up raising? So our goal was $20,000. We raised $60,000. Oh, my gosh. And Savannah, tell us, how many people are running this year? So there's 11 girls total this year. Um, and our goal actually is kind of daunting, but it's a quarter of a million dollars this year. Wow. Um, but yeah. There's and everybody has ties to UT in some way or at least friends of people at UT or it's not necessarily based in Austin yeah no not necessarily there's the majority of us are in Austin there's six of us total in Austin um and then the other girls kind of found out through social media Mm -hmm. or we've got girls in Oklahoma um Alabama she's in high school still which is awesome like she's so cool cool. (laughs) yeah when I was in high school I was 
a scrub. <laughs> but, um, and then Arkansas. Cool. So. Let's uh, let's talk about human trafficking, sex trafficking a little bit, because it's a cause that I feel like both A, explosion, there's been an explosion in interest in the past few years, but I also feel like the vocabulary we have for it is somewhat imprecise. So talk to us about what trafficking is exactly and why it's such a problem in Texas. So sex trafficking... I don't know the official definition, but I would say is exploiting someone against their will and paying them for sex. And so it's such a huge issue in Texas and in Austin, in Houston, in San Antonio, in tiny towns. It's happening all over and more and more data is coming out about that. Um, Specifically, a year ago, the University of Texas released a two-year-long extensive study on the numbers and they came out with the fact that there are 79,000 children and young adults being trafficked in Texas today which is just you know one is too many wait and that's so crazy um it's crazy also because it seems like it's a problem that hides out in the open mm-hmm. because if you see a young girl and an older adult you wouldn't necessarily think anything's the matter mm-hmm. so it's um it can be uh, difficult to identify the problem, even if it's right in front of you. And we mm-hmm. tend to only hear it ar- about it around the Super Bowl or Formula One right. or some of these big events where it's like, ooh, there's going to be a whole bunch of people watch out for the rise of interest. Mm-hmm. But what you guys are finding out is that the interest is there every single day. Every day. And that the demand is there. Under, you know, stickingly so. We can't understand how this is still happening. But, um, so, Grace, you work with The Refuge, which is an organization that you that is helping mitigate some of the effects of this. Can you tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about that? Yeah. So The Refuge is building or The Refuge Ranch out in Bastrop County, and it's going to be a long-term healing ranch for survivors age 11 through 19. Um, at capacity, it'll house 48 girls and kind of be a holistic healing type of ranch. Um, 50 acres was donated to Brooke Crowder, the founder a few years ago, and there's going to be a University of Texas charter school on site. The girls are going to receive music therapy, art therapy, equine therapy. There's going to be a studio with fitness and yoga classes and a chapel, um, just kind of where they can find healing from every single angle, you know, because it's healing isn't going to just happen in a room one-on-one talking with a counselor. And right now you said there's only 24 beds in the whole state of Texas for this kind of mm-hmm. rehab. 79,000 victims and only 24 beds. Wow. And in the United States, there are only, there are 27 states that don't have a single bed for these survivors to find the healing that they need. Did either of you have a personal connection to this issue? No, not directly. I went on a trip to Thailand uh, three years ago and stayed in a hostel that was a couple blocks from the red light district which is where the bars are where prostitutes just stand out and sell themselves and I lived there for two months and just befriended these women just you know would go into the same bars every night and play pool with them and um, order drinks with them and then you know hang out with them during the day and learn their stories and that's when I first ever realized that prostitution and human trafficking was such a reality and I came back to America and I was like, what can I do here to help these women and started researching. And then I learned, oh, my God, it's not happening only 
on the other side of the ocean. Like it's here. Right. Um, something that we were talking about off mic too was the fact that it's not just man jumping out of the bushes grabbing a girl, which those stories do exist. Mm-hmm. But part of the explosion in it happening over the past few years has been technology, this more subtle, insidious form of relationship building between pimp and child, a process we know is grooming. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that, like why that is such um, a trap for young girls to find themselves in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so grooming basically is the process of a pimp or a trafficker who is slowly manipulating their target. And so now the fact that we have social media, these pimps can contact girls, you know, who are just posting photos of themselves. All it starts off with with is a message, an Instagram direct message. And, um, you know, six months later, after you've been talking consistently with this older man who might be cute and he, you know, kind of manipulates your situation. So a sign that that, um, people tell you to look out for is if someone you don't know is messaging you and they're kind of manipulating your personal situation to make it feel worse than it actually is or make you feel like oh you don't deserve that like I can take better care of you and your parents are the worst you should just you know run away for a week and show them you know that you can make your own decisions and so after a year of these kind of conversations you know a girl's going to take you up on that offer and maybe you've met this man a couple times before there's a man on our board of directors with the refuge who this happened to his daughter um a man had been messaging his daughter on snapchat and one night she was at a party that she wasn't supposed to be at and needed to go home but didn't have a ride so she sent out a message on snapchat said can someone pick me up and take me home this guy replied and said yeah i can do it they had met before they'd been talking for a year He picked her up and didn't take her home. And there's just stories like that left and right. You know, this man was a wealthy man in Houston. Wow. Never would think that that would happen to someone he knew, much less himself. Wow. Wow. Well, it's amazing work that you guys are doing with Petal the Pacific and The Refuge. And um, uh, one one last question that both Addie and I had for you was, how does how do things change for girls when they get this kind of help? Like, how what is the power of not just talking about their story, but being in a community of fellow survivors? So I think that it's really awesome for these girls because I'm sure a lot of their life they think, I'm the only one, you know, I am a failure because this happened to me. I'm a failure because I didn't run away. I'm a failure because X, Y, Z. And the fact that they're going to have other girls in the cottages with them going through the same journey, realizing this isn't my fault. You know, I was manipulated. I was taken advantage of, and I did not deserve what happened to me. Um, Just finding someone who's been through the same thing and talking about it. And, you know, some of these girls might go on and become mentors to other survivors down the road. Our director of therapy is a survivor herself. And some other girls, you know, they might never want to talk about it again, but at least in their hearts, they've found peace through what they've been through and through their story. And then because of that, they can go and be who they want to be and find their identity in something worthy, you know, instead of... So besides, uh, you know, just having these conversations and being aware of the Refuge Ranch uh, and maybe even supporting Petal the Pacific, is there anything else that we can do to sort of, you know, either help your organization or become more aware of this situation in our state? 
I think that the best thing that people can do is educating yourself, knowing the signs, knowing that no sign is too small to report. You know, a lot of people think, oh, I just saw, you know, a much older man with a younger girl and she didn't look like, you know, she was well taken care of. She didn't look like she belonged in that situation. All you have to do is call the human trafficking hotline and say, this is what I saw. And then they can take it from there. So it's not something you call 911 for. You can call 911 or human trafficking hotline, one or the other. Um, But just educating yourself of the signs and having those conversations. You know, it's not an easy thing to talk about. And that's why Pedal the Pacific exists, because we use something as small as a bicycle to kind of bridge the gap and open those conversations. And then we get to tell people about the harsh reality of sex trafficking, but the hope that is found in the Refuge Ranch and the Refuge for DMSD and the um, unbelievable things that they're doing. You know, it's a hard topic, but there's hope. Yeah. Grace and Savannah, thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate it. Thank Thanks you for, for having, having us. us. Good luck, Savannah. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Chamberlain was a stay-at-home dad for four years before he started Shutterbugs, a kids' photography studio where young Austinites learn photo basics and the art of saying yes to your creative self. Thanks for coming to the studio, John. Thank you for having me. So you have been a photographer for a long time. Were you a kid shooting photos? I unfortunately wasn't. I couldn't find anything when I was a kid. I was really, really into movies, and Mm -hmm. I got into photography and my grandfather was a kind of an amateur photographer, but there wasn't anything really to uh, stimulate sure. my interest. And so it wasn't until you were in high school or even later? Uh, college. Wow. Yeah. So you, were you shooting on film still? I was. I think my freshman year, I took like a really you know, basic photography class. And then my grandfather uh, lived in a very, like he just lived very alone, this very kind of like solitary life. And it was very intriguing to me. So I spent a week and a half with him in a camera. Wow. And so, yeah, I would just, I just use black and white film and he was very into cameras. So he would tell me all the things I was doing wrong while so I was doing So you had this like it. one-on-one photo camp with your grandpa. Totally. Wow. And, and he just, he wouldn't, he would only tell me what I was doing wrong. He wouldn't tell me like, you should do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, I got, I really got to know him through all that. Mm. And so I would watch him kind of split the Duplo cookies apart and mm-hmm. dip them into his coffee mm-hmm. and how while well he ate like old fashioned loaf sandwiches i'd take photos of them and yeah so you were perceptive even at that age well even as a new photographer at the details and the things that you know i mean i think when i first started taking photos it was with the little disposable cameras as probably Mm -hmm. a middle schooler and it was on vacation and it's like here let me take a picture of the beach and it was just like right nothing really to stand out from it so now that you've been working with kids and teaching kids photography talking to families about making pictures printing pictures capturing them just the whole gamut of it what would you say that kids are naturally good at when it comes to photography? Uh, I mean, my favorite thing about working with children is they don't have any opinions about photography. They have lots of opinions, but they kind of are an open book about what I can kind of nudge them towards or not at all. But if I give a kid a camera, once they figure out how to use it, they don't have this like, oh, I must have it like the rule of thirds or it has to be, you know, I've, mm-hmm. I have kids that insist it not be in focus. Or that the flash must be on, even though they're, they're it's all overexposed. But they have ideas about what they want, 
but not these kind of like, you know, you talk to an adult and they're like, oh, but I read this or I know this to be true. They don't yeah, have those. self-limitations. And so, and also just in general, like uh, in a very simple way, that height where now they're mostly pointing up. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of my least favorite thing about my class is it's always from underneath my chin. <laughs> and so I always just look at the least flattering photos of myself after everybody leaves. But that's what I think the heart of this segment is about for me is that kids offer a different perspective yeah, absolutely. And, and especially when you start to throw art in it, they can become the masters just as easily as their parents can. So it can almost be a leveling of the fields. And, you know, we're all carrying around in our back pockets these cameras that are, make it really easy for, for parents to shoot photos. But and, and I, I'm, you know, my kids are 11 and 7. And so they're always asking me, particularly the younger one, also to take pictures. You know, I, oh, I want to I want to take a picture of this. And it's actually a great way to um, engage them like at a museum or at a park when right. they're starting to kind of lose their patience. It's like, here, take my phone. I want you to go make 10 pictures of what you're seeing. And then and then the other, you know, Julian, now you go take 10 pictures and then we can compare and contrast mm-hmm. them. Um, how do you recommend parents? I mean, let's just talk about phones for a second. Do you like it when kids are shooting on phones? I do. do. You think that, yeah. Tell me I how, think, what role that plays. I think, first of all, so, you know, like I didn't grow up with a, my parents having a cell phone. I knew a little bit about cameras, but not very much. But now, like by the time most kids are three, well, not even really, like one, that phone's just always there. And yeah, you could say all this stuff about like, oh, cell phones are bad. or, But mostly, once the kid understands the, you know, pressing the simple button, can take a photo. And I, I, like, I like what you said, that you were like, oh, go take 10 photos. I use that all the time where I'll say, give me five different photos. Don't shoot the same thing five times. But the phones, like, so they already come to me where they're like, oh, I use my parents' phone all the time. Or the parent will say, like, they love taking my phone and taking pictures. Mm-hmm. And so they already have that interest and they're already really into it as opposed to, you know, prior cell phones where they, a camera seems very complicated and complex and you can't really like show a kid a dark room. Yeah. And it gives you that instant feedback. You can look at right. it instantly and say and see if you wanted to adjust it in some way. Um, in your studio, you also have some cameras that you have the kids play with. Talk to me about what those are like. You know, you don't automatically give them sort of the most expensive SLR that's on the market. Um, what are kind of the baby steps beyond the phone if parents wanted to, you know, encourage this this hobby? Sure. So, uh, I mean, I start with the Polaroid, like the instant Fujis, just because, again, like the phone, it's instant gratification where you see your photo, you watch it develop, which is always like a magical thing. The first time a kid sees a Polaroid, you know, it's just like this whole, like, why is it doing that? They get all excited and then they see it. And sometimes it's just the idea of like, like the younger they are, if a three or four year old is using a Polaroid, then it's like, I just want to see how many pictures can come out of this thing. <laughs> to the tune of $200. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they're the, pretty the expensive, dollar right? a piece. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I have these, uh, they're the Canon power shots. They're probably about 10 years old, maybe a lot older than that. But, and I can find them used for like 20 or $30. And they just, in the middle of the camera is a green, it's a, it's a white square. It turns green when it's in focus and it beeps. Mm. And there's a zoom in, a zoom out. There's lots of other functions they can use, but mm-hmm. pretty much those two things, once they learn that, and I kind of set it up where the lighting in my studio is good enough. Mm-hmm. And so they start with those and that just gets them constantly thinking about, like, if I look through this screen and I point it here and I want this, like I have a class on Saturdays and this past Saturday was just me and the four-year-old that comes in there and he's just got a great eye you know like he just sees kind of what he sees but he also knows how to be in focus and he's kind of got an idea of composition as far as like I want like we were doing this still life thing and he really wanted it to be in the center of the frame 
And then when I asked him to change it up, he really wanted to be on the top of the frame. Mm-hmm. And he's been coming to me for maybe eight months now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes class is crazy, but then when he gets camera in his hand, you know, and he knows like, oh, green, beep, good, uh, and all that stuff just kind of is easy for him now that it's just limitless. You know, we took these, we were making slime, and I had my mindset on what he was going to do, and he had his mindset on not doing that. So he ended up taking all the slime, smashing it, rolling it all up, and it kind of ended up looking like a rose. So I got these rose petals that I had, and we put it all together, and then he took that. And it was like, you know, that's like 80% him. That's really cool. So you, it sounds like you encourage students, kids of all ages, to shoot their environments, but also think creatively about props. You know, yeah, I, um, I love using props because it just is this... And I also think a lot of kids' brains work that way, where it's mm-hmm. very abstract. And it, so it's not so much like I take an orange and say, like, what will you do with this orange? It's just there. Mm-hmm. And so they'll kind of bring it in. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's definitely kind of a free-form sort of Montessori mm-hmm. approach to it all. And I definitely will help certain kids that, you know, but I don't really have to that much. Sure, let them lead it. And then as they understand the camera they're using, and I can trust them not to drop a more mm-hmm. expensive camera, they'll move on. And so I have a almost six-year-old, and he'll use this camera where it, like you set your own f-stop. And there's a strobe light and a flash trigger. And he doesn't understand all of the exact math or science behind it, but he definitely knows, like, oh, this is way too bright. Can you turn that light down for me? I'll turn it down. And he understands the strobe. And we we work on, like, capturing action, so shutter speeds. And so even if he stops taking this class and doesn't touch a camera, it's there because he's now been doing it for over a year. That's really cool. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was just the importance, I mean, I'm leading you, (laughs) of um, printing off photos. You know, I love to print photos, and I think that printing them kind of realizes them in a way that is different than when they're just on my phone or on a computer. And you will have show your kids will have shows. Yeah, so... the studio space is kind of almost like a capstone. And so I just wanted you to explain a little bit about your thinking behind that show mentality. Sure. I mean, definitely I agree with you as far as printing the photo, you know, uh, getting it off the iPad, the phone, the computer, whatever it is, like it, it might look great. But when you print it out and hold it, it just it just changes the dynamic. So, yeah, at the end of either every month or so of classes or at the end of each session of summer camps that I have, um, I'll print out all of the photos that they like. You know, so the, all these 10 are my favorite or these 12. And if I have enough time with them, sometimes we'll go photo by photo and we'll edit them together and they'll title them. So we print them all out. We hang them all up on these little tiny hooks and then they pick music if they want to. They invite whoever they want. Usually I have like sparkling apple cider. And That's I've so had cute. I've had parents bring like pastries and flowers. Oh. <laughs> and have an art show. Yeah, and it's yeah. great. And it's that my favorite part is they go through each photo and so say it's been like five weeks in my class. And they'll explain every single thing we did. But they want to. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're really, really excited mm-hmm. to tell them. So we did this uh good pop popsicles shoot. And so I watched like a four-year-old a few weeks ago. He really wanted to just take an orange and shove the popsicle inside of it. So we ended up like flipping the popsicle. So just the stick would go into the orange. But he explained all of it, like how we did it. We wow. used lights. And it, he was just like so proud of himself. And that's the thing is they're so proud of their work. See, I, I love <clears throat> giving kids the opportunity to do something for themselves and then talk about their work. You know, it's, it's the same thing that adults want. Exactly. Yeah, it, yeah. They're just doing it in a smaller package. Well, John, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, how can people find you on the Internet if they want to find out more? You can find me on shutterbugsatx.com. 
and I have all the things about my classes and camps on there, and I do also an open studio on Sundays. What's your Instagram? And it's ShutterbugsATX. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming in, John. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Now we've come to the moment in our show where we have a toast. This is where we go around the table talking about some things we think you, our listeners, should check out. So, Addie, what do you have for us? Over the weekend, I saw Tully, the Charlize Theron movie about basically becoming a parent for the third time, which as Tully... Commiserate with one vowel away. (laughs) Well, totally and totally. But you know, it can be a pretty exhausting and daunting task. I mean, having a kid in the first place, and then if you already have two kids and you have a third kid, like it's pretty overwhelming. And this movie is about the experience of a woman who struggles with postpartum depression and some mental health issues that stem from lack of sleep, just the craziness that comes from trying to raise a family. And she's a stay-at-home mom, and she's got a supportive husband, played by Ron Livingston of Office Space, who is trying his best, but he's not really paying attention to her. And it's just it's real, a real struggle. But the premise is that her brother has a lot of money and decides to pay for, or at least offer to pay for, a night nurse. And the concept alone was not super appealing to me because I did not have a night nurse. I think it's sort of like bougie to have a night nurse. Mm -hmm. But what I learned was that um, basically the movie is about the relationship between uh, the mom and this night nurse and how it evolves. And as they get closer, that gap between them starts to close and you start to learn and understand a lot about the transformation that happens when you have kids. Mm-hmm. The, the transformation that all women have as they as they grow from different phases of life and what you what you leave and what you gain and the tension between that sadness of who you once were mm-hmm. as opposed to who you are and, and what lies ahead. Mm-hmm. And there is a major, mega, huge, jaw-dropping twist that I will not tell you about or even hint about, but I was squealing with delight and laughter and tears and I have not walked out of a movie in so long with such joy in my heart. So I really cannot tell you enough. Wow. So Diablo Cody wrote it um, of Juno and Young Adult fame. Um, and as I was saying off mic, it, this movie kind of makes Juno look like a student project. And I actually kind of, I did like Juno. It was flawed and, and somewhat problematic in different ways. And there are some criticisms about this movie that it takes mental health, postpartum mental health too lightly or that it doesn't take it seriously enough. But um, I I thought that it actually ended up to be this wonderful metaphor about, about womanhood. So... Wow. Anyway, that is my I cannot wait. Yes. I mean, movies are so far off my radar right now for some reason, or like if I'm hearing about things or superhero stuff. Uh, no, this this actually was a, a movie pass discovery. So wow! Um, thanks oh to, hey, yeah, movie I'm, pass. I'm, 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 All movie right. Pass. So Sunday morning, it's like okay, I got a couple of kid free hours. <laughs> what what could I go see? And I literally opened up the movie pass app, and I was like, what's this Tully movie? It starts in an hour. Uh, okay, sure, why not? <laughs> and so I went, and then that's how I a just, magical surprise. Yeah, yeah. That is so cool, Addie. Um. Okay, so, so Tali, what are you into? Okay, mine is um, also a performance. Um, it is at the Vortex Theater uh, this coming weekend, and it might also be playing uh, the following weekend as well. But it's called Performance Park. And are you guys familiar with tarot cards? Mm-hmm. Oh okay. yes, so I love them. all right, so it's a musical and an immersive theater experience based on the tarot. So you don't walk into a theater, have a seat, and watch actors on stage. Like you go into the backyard of the vortex, which they share with the butterfly bar, and it's like all the characters that you interact with are animating the tarot. And so um, 
you are having different experiences with them. There's like a midway park with games that you can play with these characters. Wow. There's um, a hermit tucked away in this little like hut that you can go visit and talk to. There's um, like, gosh, I won't tell you about all the characters, but and then there's um, sort of an internal story that's going on as well. So in addition to just interacting with these people, there is a plot and like a conflict that arises and you can choose to be like part of the solution or not. And so and there, do, you, do you have to know very much about tarot before you go in? No, not really. I mean, they um they sort of like guide you, you know, through it a little bit. So you don't really have to know anything about the tarot, but it does make it, you know, maybe somewhat special if you kind of know like some of the um cues of these characters like mm. oh okay like this is like this is the tower like there's a big tower in the middle of the mm. backyard and that's that portends dark things as it does in the story so and every so often they'll break out into song and they might like lead you to a different area so how much longer is this going for this is definitely going on next weekend um or this coming weekend um so uh tonight, Friday, and Saturday, and I think it's also the following weekend as well. So coming to a close, so you can still get tickets, presumably Yeah, online. you can still get tickets, and um, I do recommend eating beforehand. We were there for two hours having this experience, and our wow. uh, tickets start at 7.30, so do eat eat before you go. <laughs> Pro tip. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we yeah. have a very special guest, Sharon Chapman. Hi, Sharon. Hello. Thanks for having me. Any excuse to have Sharon. (laughs) Sharon's a features editor of Austin 360 in the Statesman, so always full of great culture knowledge. She really does. I mean, it's like her job to be on top of the cool things going (laughs) on. It's a fun job. So, what should we know about right now? Well, okay. I am very excited. The television, ATX Television Fest is coming up in June. It's June 7th through 10th. You can still get badges, I believe. And I've taken this opportunity to revisit one of my favorite TV shows of all time. They're having a cast reunion of Felicity. Ooh, at, like it, everyone. Carrie yes, Russell. Carrie Russell. Scott The Speedman. boyfriends. There yes. Go. Are you team Ben or team Noel? I will say I am team Ben. It was always a controversial choice among my friend group. But on Hulu right now, you can stream every episode of Felicity. So I've thought, oh, I need to go back and revisit it before the festival they're also having an Americans cast that's panel, what I'm excited about which is also going to have Carrie of course and then yeah. Jonathan Reese I always say his name wrong but you know her counterpart her husband, her husband. Her, in real life I was gonna say, too yeah. they are a couple in real life yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and so and that show is ending soon it only has a couple more episodes I think in its last season so that's going to be amazing but I will tell you I'm I haven't gotten very far in my revisiting of Felicity but I'm surprised at some of the themes that they tackle early on. There was an episode, if you remember, one of her friends is raped. And wow. it's not like an attack in an alley. It's a boy she was dating. And they really go deep on these subjects of consent that are coming up now. And degrees of consent, not even degrees, but like, you know, you know what I'm saying? Just how yeah. it can be... How it can be confusing. Yeah. 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 yeah, and that it's... But you have agency over your own body and you can say mm-hmm. no and mm-hmm. it's really like wow I didn't realize it was so deep in the 90s or early 2000s whenever this came out yeah was it late late 90s late 90s early 2000s I yeah. think yeah so and it's, has, it, has right. it held up pretty well the themes and the acting and the characters have held well, up well the fashion is horrible <laughs> I mean <laughs> Carrie Russell wears like 
clothes that are probably five times too big for her. It's like oh, the yeah. late 90s and she's got these giant sweaters and yes. yeah, the fashion does not hold up. But everything uh-huh. else has held up well. And Oh man, talk about early curly girl icon. Yes. I was about to say, Addie. She was really one of the first people in, you know, non-national television who had curly hair like that. And real curly hair. I mean, white person who yeah, yeah. had curly hair like that. Yeah. yeah. And she didn't straighten it and you knew she never would. You could just tell. Yeah. We had sol- solidarity. Oh, uh, how'd you feel when she cut it? Because that was a big, that was, was big. It was big for her character, probably big for her. Well, I had my own hair chopping experience, you know, oh. five years after that. And it was liberating. I mean, I, I mean, I adored her curls and kind of actually wish that she would have kept them long. But that's the whole point is that they're not my curls. They're Ooh. hers. Well, and you it know? really made and sense that's, that's, yeah. in the... And what was happening to her on the show? To Felicity, mm-hmm. you know. Do you are, do you guys watch Nashville? Did you? Yes. Oh, yeah. I watched the first two seasons and I loved so it. So Claire with the big long hair. Yeah. Or maybe that's her the actress's name. Claire Bowen, I think is oh, her yes. name. So yeah. She oh chopped, yeah. She chopped oh, off her. Oh, Scarlet. 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 The super. And that was one. a big deal because that was her trying to reclaim her identity because people were so obsessed with her hair that she was oh, just I like, didn't know that. I am cutting my hair because I am not going to tolerate being reduced to my hair. Really? Wow. Wow. We should do a hair episode, you guys. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, uh, Sharon, thank you so much. Thank you. Patty, great toast. Myself, great toast. Enjoy, everybody. (laughs) That's our show. She's Addie. He's Omar. I'm Tali. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at loveaustin360. If you liked what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. It helps other people discover the show. I love you so much. The Austin 360 podcast is produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from features editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Lexus of Austin. We couldn't do the show without you, dear listeners, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your extra Mother's Day flowers. Until next week, we'll see you and your mom sipping mimosas at Snooze.